connections, connections, connections. Annie somehow connected me with the greatest crack climbers that the desert has ever seen. One day, I was logging onto Facebook and I saw a friend request pop up from Tom Randall. Now I won't say Tom's a hero, because what's a hero? And can you call a climber a hero just because of what they've climbed? Nah, but these people who push harder in climbing motivate me to push harder in my own way. I was excited. Tom Randall had just sent little old me a friend request. Welcome to episode nine of season two of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast. I am, of course, Luke Mihaw from The Climbing Zine. Rolling along here with the desert. If you're just finding us now, head back to episode one of this season because this first 12 episodes of this season do tell a concise complete story from the desert my book that was released in 2019 as i always say at the top if you've been enjoying this podcast and it's bringing something to your life the best way to support us is to pick something up from our online store or from an independent retailer in your neighborhood you can also find a link in our show notes that will get you a little discount on uh, any product in our store And I did mention Tom Randall and Pete Whitaker, the wide boys at the top of the hour. Those guys are endlessly inspiring and entertaining. And um, Tom actually is hoping to come out to the desert and has promised a campfire interview for this season for the bonus episodes. We're going to be having some interviews following the first 12 episodes, and they're all going to relate to the book. They have an awesome YouTube channel. They're putting out a ton of good content on Instagram too, the wide boys. And they got a bunch of products too. Those guys are just amazing. And Tom's one of those people in the industry. There's been several people that have like refused payment (laughs) from me, especially when I was beginning. It was really necessary. Now I, I definitely can pay all my contributors, but occasionally they'll just be that person who just wants to contribute to the zine and expects nothing back. And in volume 20 of the zine, there's some great photos of Tom bridge climbing, and there's a photo of him in the cellar as well. Let's get into episode nine. We had a half dozen roots done by the time Dave made it up there for the first time. Of course, it was inevitable that Dave would be part of this place. It was inconceivable to think of developing this wall without him. Plus, he had the knowledge, the skills, and the experience. He had that knowledge of the third eye for the creek more than just about anyone I knew. This headwall crack had dominated my thoughts ever since we began the development. I was sure Dave was game, even though it was late November and one of us was in for a long haul as a belayer. We reached the wall a sweaty mess after an hour and a half of hiking. I gave him a tour, pointed out the gems that we could bark on later, and then got to work on our king line. We laid out all the tools for the trade, and we confirmed we had all the essentials for the task at hand, and we didn't forget something key. I started up the tiny splitter that accepted the smallest of cams. If I've climbed cracks that were smaller, I don't remember when. Soon the crack ended and moved me rightward where the tiniest of seams awaited a decision. The cracks would never take gear that could possibly hold falls, so I drilled two bolts, one right after another, with that tense feeling, knowing my decision now would dictate every other ascent from now till eternity. I talked it through with Dave, and I think we made the right decision. The wind was whipping, 
Old Man Winter was saying hello, and Dave was probably freezing at the belay, but his trademark stoke and positivity kept us going. Plus, a little Madonna. For some reason, she was on repeat on the iPod, and it just gave us the right amount of moral support. I'll never forget Dave sending up good vibes and singing along to Like a Virgin, Touched for the very first time. This crack was being touched for the very first time, too. And after some careful aiding, bolting, and cleaning of loose rocks, I stood right below the headwall crack. What size is it? Dave called out, and I announced that it was taking perfect .75 placements. After 80 feet of this size, I was leapfrogging cams, as one does on straightforward aid climbing on perfect cracks. I placed an anchor, and as I lowered off, we realized this pitch was just shy of 40 meters, a perfect length for an Indian Creek mega pitch of all time. Soon after, we named it the King. Another Creeksgiving came and went, partying hard, waking up cold and lonely and hungover in the morning. Loneliness that only lasts so long because all your friends are there. It was getting to be a routine. But after that, it was nice to settle into the winter in Durango and write. This year, though, we started a new tradition of heading right back out the next weekend for one last session before winter really moved in. We tromped up to the cave wall in the snow, falling all over the place, laughing at our obsession. (laughs) We introduced our friend Adam Farrow to the wall, and he was quickly enamored. Adam was like the little brother of the crew, younger than us, and also the guy who shows up to camp saying, I forgot my stove, tent, food. Do you guys mind if I borrow some things? Adam is also the best crack climber among us. And although hard cracks were his forte, sunset seemed to be his favorite. He was always overstoking on the beauty, a good person to have around, always. Dave put up his first root on the wall. The mega dihedral he named To the Moon, a single pitch that checked in no shorter than 185 feet. Dane and I established one more modest line that we dubbed the Jigsaw Crack, a curving, jagged pitch that was pure fun. And then, Winter's Blanket was laid out, and the desert became quiet again. It's a part of my memory that was always there in one way or another, but set in a forgotten wash of my brain for a little while, until spring awakened it. That winter, I started corresponding with Annie, a poet and creative writer. Her words flowed as juice flows from fresh fruit. I started to fall in love with them, and then we started writing each other letters. I think we were both a bit lonely and got caught up in the excitement that is letter writing and communicating with another wordsmith. I wanted to meet her, and one day I just came out and asked if she wanted to meet in Joshua Tree. We'd both expressed a love for that place. I had a plane voucher stashed away for a rainy day, so in late February, I flew out, and a woman who I'd never met picked me up at the airport. She was as beautiful as she was in her pictures and had a wild energy that seemed perfect for J-Tree. I'd lived there a decade before and hadn't been back since. It was the place where I'd fallen in love with desert living. Our love affair was doomed from the beginning. It was like trying to climb the nose in a day on Al Capitan, and you'd never even climbed a big wall before. Things flowed for about a day, and then our ambitions and feelings didn't sync up. Time and space had failed to exist in my mind when I'd planned it all in my home back in Colorado. All of a sudden, I was thrust into a place in my heart that this desert demanded I see. Normally a good sleeper, I was spiraled into sleeplessness because of the carelessness of my heart and my words. I was a too-soon poet who had pursued another too-soon poet I'd never met in person before. 
Except Annie kept her cool more than I did. I was ready to start a relationship. When I expressed that to her, I immediately wished I could have taken those words back. As if they were a bottle I'd opened after being way too drunk. But I was drunk on the possibility of love. One morning I woke up in my tent, restless and heartbroken. Or maybe just feeling the heartbreak of all those years. The sun wasn't even out yet, so I just replayed our conversation from the day before. Playing it cool was never my thing, but this was the worst. I wasn't sure where my heart was, but I felt an ache from head to toe. I waited until the sun came up and decided to embark on a solo routine that I'd done a decade before. I watched an epic sunrise of orange, red, purple, and blue from the top of the Cyclops. I felt the place where my heart had been broken many times over. I said a prayer to myself. What it was, I don't recall now, but it was a prayer to be in tune with my heart. I soaked it in and felt like it was a long way from home. I scrambled up some other easy cracks. Joshua Tree is the best haven I've ever found for moderate climbs, and I pondered the last decade of my life. I still wasn't where I wanted to be, but that me from 10 years ago would have been damn sure satisfied that I was a writer. Maybe not so psyched in the fact that I was still rolling burritos for most of my money, but stoked on some sort of progression, moving slowly forward in the right direction. Little of that mattered in that moment. I was heartbroken, embarrassed, and disappointed in myself. I'd gone from so high to so low so quickly. But at this point, we were still getting along as friends, so I could crawl out of this shame spiral. Plus, we agreed that she would give me a ride back to Colorado, and then we'd finish the trip out in the creek. As friends, we got along beautifully. She was funny as fuck, and we had the same sense of humor. In some ways, we had so much in common it was astounding, probably too much in common to be lovers. We were just kindred spirits, and I confused that for the possibility of romantic love. She talked more openly about sex than any woman I'd ever met. She had so many stories, and time existed in a different sort of way once we took the flight of conversation. We wrote things together, simple things, but yet there was something I'd never done with another woman or person. We had this connection. We could write together on the same page as one person. I fiended for her love for the rest of the time we spent together that week, but she politely put up barriers. She did not feel the way I did, but did I really feel that way? Or had the lower chakra just been opened by spring? And once that is open in a man, do we lose our mind to the will of sexual urges? This episode is sponsored by Osprey. A longtime sponsor of The Climbing Zine, Osprey and The Zine share the same backyard. Located just down the road from Durango and Cortez, Osprey makes innovative, high-performance gear that reflects a love of adventure and devotion to the outdoors. High-quality packs for any adventure and season. We are proud to share a home with Osprey in the Four Corners region of Southwest Colorado. And to find out more, visit Osprey.com. This episode is also sponsored by Black Diamond, another longtime sponsor of The Climbing Zine. Black Diamond is all about climbing, skiing, and the mountains. And, of course, the desert. Black Diamond not only has the hard goods you need for climbing, but also the apparel to go along with it. The forged denim jeans are perfect for desert climbing and exploring. And the Alpenglow hoodie layers are ideal for protecting you from the sun. To find out more, visit blackdiamondequipment.com.
We drove for a day across the desert back to Durango. She told me stories that were very personal, ones she hadn't yet written out for the world. I believed in her stories, and she believed in mine. We were kind of soulmates, just not the ones destined to have a relationship. But I didn't come to that conclusion until months later. And I thank God, or whatever, because she was correct to feel that we weren't right for each other in her gut. And I'll always thank her for that, especially because of what happened down the line. Connections, connections, connections. Annie somehow connected me with the greatest crack climbers that the desert has ever seen. One day I was logging onto Facebook and I saw a friend request pop up from Tom Randall. Now I won't say Tom's a hero, because what's a hero? And can you call a climber a hero just because of what they've climbed? No, but these people who push harder in climbing motivate me to push harder in my own way. I was excited. Tom Randall just sent little old me a friend request. I accepted and then reached out to the guy. That's one of the beauties of the hyper-connected world. He said he couldn't remember, but someone, Annie, I found out later, had suggested our mutual passion for the desert first descents might make us friends. Just a few months later, I sat down with Tom and his partner in climb, Pete Whitaker, for an interview. Dane tagged along because they were his climbing heroes too. Most of us Americans had first heard of Tom and Pete, the wide boys, because of their ambitious off-width tour through the western United States in 2011. They sent every notorious off-width on the map, and then they established Century Crack. They later made a film about it. You gotta see it if you haven't already. It has everything good that's good about climbing films. There's so much I like about it, but something about the scene when Tom and Pete are challenged by Stevie Haston to go back to the Century Crack after they sent the climb with pre-placed gear to do a proper lead of it, placing their own gear. They didn't have to, but they did and they validated their ascent and set the bar high enough that no one seems to be following in their footsteps. Tom had this line in the film, and it went something to the effect of, I like it when someone else doubts what I can do when I know I can. I knew what he meant. It builds the fire. I don't get like that with climbing. After all, I know deep in my heart I'm an average climber. My abilities are mediocre, and anything I've done that was hard was only due to persistence, not talent. I do get like that with writing, though. When I receive rejection or critique on something I know in my heart I'm right about, it's like jet fuel for the story and almost propels it into being. We sat down with Tom and Pete in a room at the hostel in Moab. Nothing fancy, and we had a somewhat formal interview. Pete was more reserved and just seemed to want to go climbing. Both were more than friendly, though and I could have chatted with them for hours. At the end of the interview, I gave them some zines and a copy of American Climber. They went into Canyonlands, and Dane and I went to Indian Creek. The desert is big. A couple days later, Tom sent me a message and said that he'd stayed up into the wee hours of the night reading my book. I couldn't have been prouder. And he offered some advice. Well, maybe not advice, but wisdom. All throughout the book, I lamented that I had not found the love of my life, despite the fact I knew that love was all that mattered in the end. An ethos of the hopeful, hopeless, romantic. He presented the reality that when one does meet the love of their life, certain freedoms that a climber enjoys are diminished. Again, I'm paraphrasing here, but the messages are lost to the void that is the internet. Basically, it seemed like he was telling me to take the ticket and enjoy the ride, you know, because the grass is always greener. Thanks, Tom. You were right.
that was episode nine of season two of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast. Music for this episode was done by Devin Dabney. Devin is an excellent writer, rapper, all around great guy. You can check out more of his music on Spotify. Follow him on Instagram. He's Deuces Hip Hop on Instagram. And he also contributes to the climbing zine too. He's had several poems and a couple essays as well. Chad Rich is our digital editor and producer. Signing off from beautiful Durango, Colorado. This is Luke Mihal. Peace.